Our reading for today is Ruth 3, 1 through 18. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the keep of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? She told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn of how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. No. Remember, you're supposed to say, the Lord bless you. The Lord be with you. All right. Uh, Pray with me. God, thank you for this day. And uh, help us now uh, in the hearing of your word uh, to understand um, who you are, the life to which you call us, and to be empowered to live accordingly. Let the words of my mouth now and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our God, our Rock, our Redeemer. Amen. All right, so uh, we've been hearing about Ruth and Boaz, and in the last chapter, they met for the first time at the beginning of the barley harvest. Their initial encounter looked promising, but now it's the end of the harvest season, so maybe seven to eight weeks have passed. 
Presumably, they saw each other every day during work. But as far as we know, there's been no further contact or conversation between them. So, as chapter 3 opens, Naomi decides to play matchmaker and comes up with a plan. She mixes some good advice on how to go on a date. Take a bath, put on some perfume, maybe some nice clothes. After all, Boaz has only seen her in her working clothes. Some have suggested that perhaps she's still in her morning clothes. And so, basically, it's like, now, you know, dress up like you're ready to date again. She also gives her some questionable advice. Hide in the dark until he's nice and drunk. And then lie down by his feet. As well as some, just, what? Instructions. Uncover his feet, and then he'll tell you what to do. Now, Naomi's desire for Ruth to find a husband, to find security, a home, a permanent rest, is a good desire. But her strategy raises a number of red flags. This is a time of the judges, and we know that it's a dangerous time for women, even working in broad daylight in a public space. Both Naomi and Boaz had mentioned that. And yet here's Naomi asking Ruth to get dressed up and sends her out in the middle of the night alone to meet a man privately after he's had a few drinks to lie down near him and then do whatever he tells you to do. I mean, this this is not something any of us would tell our daughters or our sons. Additionally, the words that she offers echo the scandalous origins of the Moabite people, the story of the incestuous story of Lot and his daughters who got their father drunk and then slept with him. Many have wondered why Naomi would take such a risk and what she thought would happen at the threshing floor when she sent her daughter-in-law to meet Boaz. Was she so desperate to find a husband for her a daughter-in-law, that she conspired with her to entrap Boaz into marriage after a night of seduction at the threshing floor. That's how some people want to read this text. I was reminded this week of a short story uh, by Maeve Binchy called Telling Stories about a couple named Andrew and Irene. So the night before their wedding... Andrew shows up at the house of Irene to tell her that he's really sorry, but that he can't marry her anymore, that he's just not sure that this is the right thing. Irene, surprisingly, takes the news very well. In fact, she agrees to pretend uh, to go along with this and and tells him, let's pretend that it was my decision to cancel the wedding. She says, let me be seen to be the partner who had second thoughts. That way, at least, I can get out of it with some dignity. So he shows up at the wedding the next day, standing in front of the altar, knowing that the wedding is not going to take place, and he's very nervous, thinking about how he's going to tell the the people who have come to the wedding. When he hears the familiar tune for the entrance of the bride... 
Here comes the bride. And he turns, and to his utter surprise, there is Irene walking down the aisle with her father, smiling, waving, as if nothing had gone wrong. The story ends with these words. Irene never told that story to anyone. She only talked about it once to Andrew on their honeymoon when he tried to go over the event himself. And in all the years that followed, it had been so obvious that she had taken the right decision, run the right risk, and realized that their marriage was the right thing. There was no point in talking about it at all. Some people read the story of Ruth and Boaz along these lines, that Naomi took some risky initiative along with uh, Ruth, that they didn't wait around passively, and because everything sort of turned out well, it was the right thing to do. The ends justify the means. All's well that ends well. God helps those who help themselves. Others are a little more critical and read this story as a Cinderella story of a poor good girl who is rescued by a rich prince. And of course, critique it because it is a Cinderella story. And still others want to read the story much more darkly of a poor young woman seducing a rich older man or of a clueless man who gets trapped by two scheming, conniving women. Now, I think how you interpret this story really pivots on what you think happened on the threshing floor. I can tell you that scholars over the years have spilled a lot of ink, a lot of ink on this question. Not only is it unclear what Naomi had in mind when she gave instructions about uncovering Boaz's feet, but the vocabulary of this entire story is very suggestive. There is this repeated use of uncovering and revealing, of lying down, a couple spending the night alone under the cover of darkness. And we all wonder, you know, what happened? Did they do it? Didn't they? Right? That's the the mindset of many people as they read. And and many scholars, especially recent scholars, uh, interpret this as if this were a scene from an American reality TV show arguing that this was a sexual encounter, that the uncovering of the feet is a euphemism for uncovering what's between a man's feet and interpret the story accordingly. Two adults meet secretly in the middle of the night. The man is somewhat drunk. There is uncovering. And then the woman is invited to spend the night. And she does and leaves in the morning. Wink, wink. But I want to tell you that I am firmly convinced that that line of interpretation is wrong. The text and the context make it almost impossible to read it that way. It is true. It is true that the common word for feet is sometimes used euphemistically. For example, in 1 Samuel 24, King Saul is chasing David and he needs to take a restroom break. And it says, he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. That phrase, to relieve himself, is literally, he uncovered his feet. That's, right? So that's what it means, to to expose yourself. 
However, the word for feet that is used in Ruth is a different word, and it only appears in Ruth and one other time in Daniel 6, Daniel 10.6, where it clearly means just legs. There's no other way to interpret it. You, you can't interpret that in any other way. And so, with nothing else to go on, that's how we ought to go with this. She uncovered his legs or feet. Now, it's unclear why she did that. Uh, maybe it was just a discreet way of, you know, exposing his legs to the night air so that he would wake up from his sleep. But there's no other uh, clue other than that that is given to us. And for Ruth to lie at his feet, it's not a, a sexual advance or anything. It's really just a sign of her humility, I think, of recognizing her position as employee and employer, her social position in their current relationship. Consider also that Boaz asks her, who are you? He asks for her name. The fact that he's startled, practically terrified, to find a woman near him and to ask her her name tells us that this is not something that happens all the time to Boaz. This is not you know, a player where he's used to having frivolous relationships on the threshing floor and there are women around him all the time. He's shocked that there's a woman present. Furthermore, we were introduced first to Boaz and he was described as a worthy man in chapter 2. Everything we know about him, everything we've seen him say and do has shown him to live up to that name of a worthy man. And then he uses the same word, the same word worthy, to describe Ruth, that the entire town knows of her reputation in this way. And so to describe two people as being worthy or honorable, and then all of a sudden have them engage in some sort of illicit sex, and to lie about it, really just doesn't make sense. And of course, lastly, Boaz mentions that there is another redeemer who is closer to Ruth, and that he has the first rights of redeeming her. He admits that he does not have legal rights to Ruth. It, again, it's unimaginable at this point that someone who has behaved uprightly thus far, who admits he has no legal rights to redeem Ruth, would then invite her to sleep with him. Even asking her to spend a night is not anything sexual, but is really just his way of protecting her from having to walk alone back to the city at night because these are dangerous times. He sends her off before the morning so that he can protect her reputation as well as his own. Now, I'm not saying that you know, biblical characters don't sometimes act badly, but there's nothing that we know of Ruth and Boaz thus far to suggest that they would break such a basic code of conduct. It seems to me that the reason we sort of want to go there is because that's the culture we live in. And that's how we have been conditioned by the culture that we live in. It's it's a judgment on us, the way we're sort of trying to read more into it than what is there in the text. That is not what is going on here. I think we have to assume the cultural norms of their time and not ours, right? So this means that we cannot read the story, as some people like to do, through the lens of Disney's happily ever after. We have to be very careful that we don't want to impose our modern romantic sensibilities onto this story. Let me remind you that it is very unlikely that Boaz is Bethlehem's most eligible bachelor who just happens to fall in love with Ruth at first sight. 
It is very hard to imagine in this culture that someone of Boaz's stature and social prominence would not be married. Wealthy, prominent, single men may be a norm for us and not unusual, but back then it was practically unheard of. Now the text doesn't tell us whether he's married or had been married or widowed perhaps, but we have to assume the logical assumption is that he was married or he is married or was. In the biblical world we know that polygamy was not uncommon and marriage was really more about land and property rights and family alliances than it was about our sort of modern notions of a couple being in love. There were exceptions, but the starting point for us should be their cultural norms. Okay? So now I've completely taken out sex and romance from this story. So what's left? Let me suggest to you that the central message is more about romance than it is about romance. The chapter is more about the conventional loyalty, the chesed, that Naomi and Ruth display toward one another than it is about a romantic encounter between Boaz and Ruth. It's more Thelma and Louise than it is Romeo and Juliet. For those who are, you know, look like some of you are not familiar with the term. <laughs> um, I know it's an old movie, but the word romance um, combines the word woman and romance, and it's the female equivalent of a bromance. You know bromance, right? Not, really? Okay. Um, Naomi's plan appears to be somewhat risky, but she didn't do it carelessly, and she did not put Ruth in unnecessary danger for her own selfish gains. She's been fed by Ruth, and now she's able to see that God is working more favor- favorably in her life And so she's now free. She's been released from her self-absorption and her depression. And she's able to think and to care about others, especially Ruth. She knows that in order for Ruth to have any sort of future, she will need a husband. Right? In her framework, that's the only future that you can have that is secure and permanent. She's witnessed Boaz's response to Ruth. She's seen that nothing bad has happened to Ruth over these last two months. He's kept his promises. He's been a kind and generous employer. She's probably asked around town to, to get a, you know, to learn about his reputation among the town. She knows he's an honorable man and probably will not take advantage of her in the middle of the night. He also happens to be a relative, and she's hoping that maybe he will respond favorably and marry Ruth and give her a home. She is not thinking about herself and about redeeming the land or anything like that. Uh, And I'm going to talk about that next week. Because all those other issues with the land and redemption might jeopardize Ruth's chances with Boaz. In other words, Ruth is sacrificing her own future her own rest, her own security for the sake of Ruth. She wants Ruth to have a home. That's chesed, right? That's the covenantal loving loyalty that Naomi has for Ruth. And Ruth acts with the same attitude toward 
Naomi. Remember, she committed herself to Naomi back in Moab. She says, no matter what, I'm going to stick with you. And she fulfilled that promise by gleaning, providing food for Naomi. And now she obeys Naomi in all of her instructions, except the part where she was supposed to do what Boaz told her to do for her own gain. Instead, at the precise moment when she could gain, she goes off script and she tells Boaz, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. I know this is not the way people propose today, but this is a marriage proposal. Spread your wings over me. That's the way they did it. It's an indirect, a metaphorical way of uh, proposing marriage. For example, in Ezekiel 16, God says to Israel, I spread the corner of my garment over you. That is, I spread my wing over you. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. That's what Ruth is asking. And in fact, Ruth is using the very words that Boaz had used earlier to bless her when he said, you know, may may you come under the, the wings or the protection of God. And now Ruth says, okay, you pray that for me. Now I want you to do that for me. I mean, this is very bold, right? It's just like a... It's like the Sadie Hawkins dance where, you know, you're supposed to wait for the guy to ask, but she just goes right ahead and she does it. Instead of waiting for him to tell her what to do as Naomi had instructed, she takes the initiative to tell him what to do for her. And she says, the reason you should do this, she says, is because you are a redeemer or you are a kinsman redeemer. And this is very important. Ruth here is is combining two uh, ideas. Uh, one is this idea of what's known as a leveret marriage, where the law said that if two brothers are living together and one is married and the wife dies, I mean, and, and the man dies without having a son, then the brother was supposed to marry his brother's wife, bear children, and that those children would then carry on his brother's name, so that you were obligated to, to do that. Second idea is that this idea of a redeemer. Um, This was designed, this was a law, so that families could provide for needy members of the extended family. So, for example, if you had a piece of land and things went badly so that you were forced to sell the land to someone else, and I was, you know, his cousin, I would be obligated, as his cousin, his nearest relative, to buy back that land for him. At great cost to me, obviously. But, but I had to do that. That was, that was the obligation. And so there are these two sort of laws that were there to sort of uh, protect families in the background. And, and that's the excuse, or that's the reason that Ruth says, you should do this, because you are a redeemer. Now, the thing is, Boaz is not the brother of her dead husband. So that doesn't really apply. And we discover he's not the closest Relative, so he has no obligation there either, right? So, technically and legally speaking, Boaz is not obligated in any way. Ruth, however, combines marriage along with uh, redemption, and she asks him to be responsible for the well-being of his extended family, even though that's not his direct responsibility. Remember, earlier in chapter two, she asked him to expand the edges 
right? To, to enlarge the margins, to, to, to be generous as an employer. And now she's asking him to expand the edges, to cover with his, the edge of his cloak, in a way, beyond what was technically the law. She's asking for more. Even much more. In other words, she's now asking him for marriage, not only for herself, but also for Naomi. Even though he's not required to care for either one. That's how Boaz understands the marriage proposal. Because he blesses her, and then he says this to her. He says, you have made this last kindness, or this last chesed, greater or better than your earlier, the first time. Right? Her first act of chesed, of covenantal loyalty, was that she stuck with Naomi coming out of Moab instead of staying there. And now he sees that she is continuing to stick with her at great cost to herself. Right? Because he says, hey, I know you could have gone after the younger man. Right? You, could have, you could have married all kinds of other people. You had options. But you chose me. Because you're choosing to be faithful to keep your promises to Naomi. That's what she wants to do. Right? Because if she marries someone else that's unrelated, they will be under zero obligation to care for Naomi. But because he's a relative, because she's combining these other laws together, now he's, she's saying to boys, like, you're going to have me and you're going to be responsible for me, but that's also going to include Naomi. All of that is there in their exchange. Ruth wants to keep her promise to Naomi. That's what's going on here. In fact, at the end of the story, you hear she, her telling Naomi when she comes home, the six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. We have no record of him saying those words. Right? Maybe he did say them, and they're just not there. But maybe Ruth is just making up these words. I don't want to say she's lying. That seems a little harsh. But maybe she's, you know, saying these words to reassure Naomi that I have not forgotten you and Boaz is going to take care of you too. Right? I see my wife do this all the time. Like, I forget to say certain things to my parents or her parents and she'll tell her parents, oh, David said, you know, he said hi and he said it was great to see you guys. Like, maybe I said it, maybe I didn't, right? But like, she's, she's reassuring her like, I'm not abandoning you. Boaz is going to take care of both of us. Naomi had been complaining. She came back empty. And now we're seeing that her experiences are being filled over and over again now. And it's really this quality that impresses Boaz. He tells her, I will do for you all that you ask for all the townspeople know that you are a worthy woman. He elevates her from a widow, a servant, a handmaid, a Moabite to a worthy woman The same word that was used to describe him. And so even though they are separated by miles in terms of wealth and status, ethnicity, age, they are equal when it comes to worthiness, to faithfulness, in their living out of chesed, this this covenantal loving loyalty. You know, what's interesting is in, in our Bibles, as you know, the book of Ruth comes right after the book of Judges. 
because the story takes place in the time of the judges. And I've been interpreting this story primarily in terms of uh, the story as a commentary or a theological reflection on the time of the judges, right? But in the oldest Hebrew Bibles, the book of Ruth does not come after the book of Judges. It comes after the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 31, the last chapter in Proverbs, some of you may know this, right? It ends with this list of what a worthy woman is. It describes a worthy woman. She is, and it's, by the way, it's the same word. It describes a woman who does good, not harm, who works willingly with her hands, provides food for her household, whose strength and dignity are her clothing, who has the teaching of kindness or chesed on her tongue, who does not eat the bread of idleness, who fears the Lord, whose works are praised in the city gates. All my townspeople know this about you. I mean, this is Ruth. Ruth is the worthy woman. That's, that's why it's placed there, probably. And, and that, that's an amazing thing, that she would be declared the worthy woman. It's like when Jesus was asked to describe a good, loving neighbor, and Jesus says, well, I can't really think of a good Israelite, but let me tell you about a Samaritan. Who is a worthy woman? It's not who we'd expect. It's not a wealthy, beautiful, Jewish mother with seven sons. It's a destitute widow, a migrant worker from from the despised land of Moab. That is a worthy woman because of what she's done. It's not your background, your ethnicity, your wealth, your age, your gender, your marital status. It's someone who keeps loving promises, even at great cost to themselves. Someone who keeps covenantal loyalty. That is a worthy woman, a worthy man. It's someone who pursues good for those for whom they are responsible for, to be generous and to expand their ability to help. This is how we are to live in all times, and particularly in a time like the judges, or a time like ours, when it's chaotic and dangerous. You know, a few weeks ago, um, I officiated a wedding, um, and one of the things that I mentioned in my sermon was how the, uh, the bride and groom responded to my question about why they wanted to uh, marry each other. So I asked, you know, why do you want to marry this person? And the groom said, uh, the groom said um, I like her smile. And so I was waiting for him to say some more things. <laughs> but he didn't. It's not a great answer. But honestly, that's kind of where I was when I was his age, right? So I thought, okay, you know what? You might be okay. Uh, but the bride, uh, as is typical... She said much, much more. And one of the things that she said was, was, he's good to my parents. She said, he's good to my parents. And you know, that is a really good answer. Not a lot of young couples give that answer. I know I wasn't thinking that. In this country, I know that marriage is all about your personal happiness, about the Two people just being in love with each other and nothing else matters. But that's, that's not true. 
And those of you who are married, you know that is, that is not true. Marriage involves so much more then and now. It's thinking about others and not just about your own personal satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness. And, and Ruth understood that. She lived according to that. And that's why she chose Boaz. And that's what Boaz recognized in her that was worthy and why he was willing to marry her. Let me close with this. You know, Ruth made herself very vulnerable and put herself in a potentially compromising and perhaps even dangerous situation for the sake of Naomi. And Boaz could have rejected Ruth's offer. He could have said, listen, you know, I'm not the closest relative. I don't want to deal with, you know, your mother-in-law. Ruth, you are not my problem. I'm not the one that's responsible for you. He could have said all that, and he would have been still declared a good man, a righteous man. He did nothing wrong. But he was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to fulfill the spirit of the law as a redeemer to care for his extended family. Even at cost, perhaps great cost to himself. Both Naomi and Ruth trusted Boaz to do more than the law required. And this, it seems to me, is how God wants to work behind the scenes in the world. God actually seems to want to depend on men and women who are willing to act with chesed, with covenantal loving loyalty to accomplish God's purposes. I mean, God's will is going to get done regardless of whether we behave well or not, so that's not the question. But I think this is God's preferred method that he invites us to participate in the working out of his will as we respond in a covenantally loving way. Boaz and Ruth had Naomi, the three, I mean, they, they, they weren't thinking about how is this fitting into God's overall you know, plan of redemption and salvation of the world. They're just making choices, daily choices, that are faithful, that are generous, that's thinking about the other people in their lives They're looking out for the well-being of those in their lives, not just about themselves. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's about the well-being of the community, of the family. That's what's driving them. And look what God does, or how God does. Remember in the first chapter, Naomi had blessed and prayed for Ruth while still in Moab. She said, may the Lord deal kindly with you, with chesed, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Right? Naomi prayed that. And now that prayer is being answered in part through Naomi. And then in chapter 2, Boaz had prayed and blessed Ruth with these words. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given by the Lord to you. The God of Israel under whose wings you have taken refuge. And that prayer now is being answered in part through Boaz. God heard the prayers and the blessings of Naomi and Boaz for Ruth. And now God is answering those prayers through the very people who prayed those prayers. Boaz's prayers are being answered not only by Naomi, but by him. And similarly, Naomi's prayers are being answered not only by Boaz, but by herself as well. I think this is what God does. This is how God answers prayers.
In Matthew chapter 9, the chapter ends with Jesus telling his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest, right? So Jesus says, you know, there's, there's so much harvest, but there are not enough workers. So pray earnestly that God will send out workers. Let, let's, let's pray that. And I'm sure he got together with the disciples. I'm sure they had a prayer meeting, and they prayed, God, send out laborers, send out laborers, right? They prayed that. And then what happens? The beginning of chapter 10, you know what Jesus does? He sends out his disciples, He sends out his disciples. He's not waiting for other people to respond to that prayer. He sends out his disciples. I think, you know, I feel like I should do more of that. Let's pray for things that we need for the ministry. For our mission teams, like for West Virginia and Kenya. And then let's follow that up with, you go. Let's pray for those who are sick and lonely and tired. And let's follow that up with, you go and comfort them. Every time you volunteer or give of yourself in faithfulness to someone else, you know, you're, you're, you're an answer to someone's prayer. Think about that. You're an answer to someone's prayer. Sometimes God's telling us, you know, you... You know, you're praying and you want that person to be comforted? You really, you really want that for that person? Then go. You be the comfort. You be the answer to that prayer. You know, this is why prayer is so vital to our life together. We have not because we ask not. And others have not because we ask not. I don't want to suggest that this is how God always works, that God always, you know, uh, does it this way? But sometimes, yeah, this is, this is how God works in the world. When you pray, and you're serious about your prayers, God will move your own heart. God will. And God will bring people to answer that prayer, and sometimes God will use you to answer that prayer. I know I, I joke about this, uh, but, but this is true. 19 years ago or so, um, probably just a couple of you now, uh, some of you uh, in this church uh, joined with me in praying for this church. Remember? About 19 years ago, we prayed together for God to send a pastor to this church. I was sincere in my prayers. My wife and I loved the church, and we wanted God to send a really good pastor to, to continue the ministry and the life of this congregation. But, and God answered those prayers. He did. But not in the way I expected. And I'm sure probably not in the way some of those other people were praying expected. <laughs> God basically said, okay, I will send a pastor. But until I do, I want you to be the pastor. So I'm still waiting these 19 years later. <laughs> and I know some of you are probably waiting too. <laughs> what are you praying for these days? Do you know what others are praying for? Maybe you're a part of that answer. Maybe you're a part of that answer. Are you praying for someone to be comforted? Are you praying that someone might hear about Jesus? Are you praying that 
People will volunteer to help out with the sprouts or the sound ministry, as you see in the bulletins. Are you praying for extra helpers with our VBS coming up? Or for the youth retreat that's also coming up? Are you praying for our retreat committee for our uh, October retreat uh, at the end of September? Not October. Are you praying for the retreat committee? Are you praying for our church to become a great worshiping congregation? I'm praying for all those things. And I'm waiting to see who else God is going to raise up to answer my prayers and the prayers the rest of us are praying. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's you. Let's pray together. God, we, um, we're thankful for your word and the way that it um, challenges us, the way we think about things. And today, God, um, we're reminded of your continuing call to be faithful, to keep our promises to one another. And the God that, as we practice that, that you will use us as an answer to the prayers of those who are calling out to you. So God, help us to keep our promises, to keep our promises to one another and to you. And to see what you might do. And as you nudge us, help us to respond and to answer the call to do the work that you have called us to. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.